Thank you uh, for joining us for another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. I'm your host, Raymond Hawkins, uh, Chief Revenue Officer at Compass Data Centers. I am joined by Uptime Institute's Chief Technology Officer, Chris Brown. Chris, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And if I remember right, Chris, aren't you joining us from somewhere outside of Tulsa? Is that is that the best, uh, as close as we want to get? Yeah, I am just outside Tulsa, Oklahoma. Chris, thank you so much for jumping on uh, with us. We would love to hear a little bit about you. I know uh, I know Oklahoma is home, but you did a stint down here when you went to school. Uh, talk a little bit about your time in and out of Texas and in Oklahoma, and and uh, how you what what path led you to end up being uh, uh, at uh, Uptime Institute. Certainly. Well, I'm actually from Texas, uh, North Central Texas, just north of Dallas. And I went to school at the University of Texas in Arlington and pursued a degree in electrical engineering. And it was kind of interesting how I got into the data center industry. It's, I just fell backwards into it. Uh, you know, I graduated from college in uh, 1995. Uh, data centers were, you know, I mean, they were, they were going strong, but they weren't well, widely known. We, we didn't publish, the industry didn't publicize itself very well. Uh, you know, and while I was in college and in my senior year trying to look for a, a job, American Airlines was at, on campus and they approached me and wanted to talk about, you know, uh, their Sabre division. And so after a little bit of that, uh, they, you know, we kept the conversations going and, uh, that's how I found myself in Oklahoma. So a, a Texas, Texas boy that swore up and down, he probably never lived in Oklahoma has spent, uh, over the last 25 years here. On the wrong and side of the Red River. <laughs> on the wrong side. But, uh, All right. you know, it was a good, it, it was a good thing because I, I got into the data, into data centers through Sabre. And it's been, you know, that that life has been very good to me. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to get into a, some different companies when they were in, uh, in in times when they were doing a lot of work and a lot of changes. So it allowed me to, you know, get 30 years worth of experience in about 10 or 15 years. And so it's, it's, it's been very good. And, and I've enjoyed uh, working in the industry and look forward to uh, many more years to come. All right. So if I remember right, didn't Sabre have a big presence up there outside of Tulsa, right? Wasn't there a big data center facility in the Tulsa area? Am I am I remembering correctly? Yeah. Sabre had two data centers uh, right on the airport property. Okay. So, so if you think about it in Tulsa, Tulsa International Airport, uh, American Airlines had a long-term lease on a lot of property just on the edge of the airport. Okay. And so when American Airlines built their data center, they built their first data center out of an old office building. Okay. And then they uh, actually built a purpose built uh, underground data center uh, there on the airport property that could, that could continue to operate even if they had a, you know, a crash, unfortunate crash there. And so they had two good, two decent sized data centers there. Then when they spun off Sabre, uh, Sabre built a third data center a little bit further off the airport, uh, about 10 miles away, but still in that area. And it's a fairly large data center and it's uh, still in use today. It's about five acres under roof. Oh my goodness. Five acres. That's a chunk. All right. Okay. So Sabre, which and at one point wasn't Sabre part of American and then it became its own outsourcing for lack of a better term business. Is, do I understand that correctly, Chris? Yeah. Sabre was, uh, you know, created by American Airlines 
to handle their own reservations systems, which then expanded into their operations systems. Uh, that every, basically every aspect of the airline was managed by, you know, managed through the Sabre systems. Uh, they had tried for years and successfully in some areas to expand and provide those services to other companies and other uh, airlines and rental car companies, hotels and things of that nature, but they were seen as competitors. And so uh, about 1997, they decided to spin it off into its own individual company. Uh, and uh, so Sabre kept operating the data centers and, and providing the IT s- services and uh, tried to you know expand in, in, into different companies in different areas. So walk me through the transition from um, doing American and Sabre and travel and the data centers there in Tulsa. How do, where do you jump rails and head over into the Uptime Institute and start teaching the industry how to think about this stuff? Well, it was once again, you know, most opportunities are those that uh, just are, are surprises rather than things that are planned. Uh, I worked with Sabre for a little while. Uh, Sabre was getting ready to spin off its data centers to ultimately EDS. But at the time, we didn't know who it was. And all I knew was Sabre was getting out of real property. And as, a, as an electrical engineer, real property is pretty much what I do. And uh, so I... You know, I left Sabre, went, did a little stint in the petroleum industry with uh, Sitco Petroleum, uh, working with their laboratories, their pipelines, their lube oil plants. You know, when they found out that I knew something about data centers, I kind of got uh, into, into a lot of their uh, laboratory stuff. Uh, but then, you know, uh, EDS was operating those data centers, the old Sabre data centers. And I knew some folks that were there and they were having some troubles. And I kept telling them that... Uh, you know, how to, how to fix the problems. And then one day, uh, a gentleman from Trammell Crow Company, who was their operating company, called me up and it was essentially uh, put up or shut up. And uh, it was an opportunity to go work for them. So I went, worked for them for a few years, uh, did a little sideline as well uh, after that. So Trammell Crow for about five years and then d- did some contract engineering work uh, due to some family issues. And I need to be home more often because as you probably know, if you're working in a data center, it's pretty much an 80 hour a week gig or more. Uh, and then uh, those family issues got solved and I was looking to, to get back in with the team and a friend of mine that I'd known for years and worked with in uh, Sabre and some other places uh, called me up because the Uptime Institute needed some uh, engineering help. And so I took that opportunity and uh, started working with Uptime Institute. And so with Uptime Institute, I started that in 2010 and have worked my way up from, uh, you know, a consultant uh, delivering their certifications for data centers to uh, being the CTO of the company. Be 12 years here next month or two months, won't it? Is that about right? It, it will be. I yeah. started in January 2010. All right. 12 years. That's a, that's a long gig for anywhere. So congratulations on that. All right. So talk to us. So we've gotten you a Texas boy that ends up on the wrong side of the Red River. Uh, got schooled on both sides, right? UT uh, Arlington and I think Oklahoma State, right? So you get educated on both sides of the Red River. So um, and <clears throat> understand the, the American Airlines piece of it. So now you're at the Uptime Institute. Tell me what in the early days, because if I think about it, I know you're talking about data centers in 95 and 96. I mean, there have been computers living in buildings for a long time. But as far as the wholesale sort of commercial approach, that's an early 
you know, two thousands kind of a thing. Um, what what did the what did the world look like? You know, five, six, seven years in when you joined the Uptime Institute and and your know, commercial wholesale data centers were still fairly new in twenty ten. What, what what were you guys doing? What were you guys teaching the industry? Talk, talk to me about the early days and love to hear how it's transformed in your twelve years. Well, well, back then, you know, when the retail data center industry was just getting going and and establishing its footprint, you know, they were they were they were needing to capture business from the enterprise, uh, and and convince the enterprise companies that it was better to use them for their data center space rather than build their own and operate their own data center space. And one of the challenges that was happening at the time was having all those folks that had spent you know ten years, fifteen years, twenty years designing and building data centers for specific companies and operating them for specific companies to trust anyone outside of them as to, as a place to house the the IT. So, you know, that was a big, that was a big challenge then. And, you know, we worked with uh, some of the co-location providers at the time and talking to them about uh, the tier standards because there were some, you know, that were not really adhering to really any standards of all at all. And uh, they were trying to learn the ropes as well. You know, it was a, a burgeoning industry. And so, you know, we, we started talking to them about the tier standards and uh, tier certification and things to prove that they were designed, but also uh, compliant and performed to those tier standards. So, Chris, did the, con- did the concept of tiers, is that an uptime concept? Is that where tiers started? Or was there already yes. a notion? Okay, so so putting that title, you're a tier two, tier three, tier four data center started at Uptime. It did. It started at Uptime Institute, and uh, it was one of those things that uh, you know Uptime Institute had been talking about tiers since uh, before mm, 2006. Okay, and uh, you know there was there was a lot of discussion there, and uh, Uptime Institute had been involved in the original, you know, I guess you say birthing of tiers well before that, but it was, they were starting to, you know, commercialize it, get the market and the industry familiar with uh, the tier standards, tier requirements, things of that nature. And so when I came on board at the Uptime Institute, I'd had exposure with tiers before then. And when I came on at the Uptime Institute, we were trying to, you know, we talked to and convinced uh, a lot of players in the co-location industry that, the way to communicate to enterprises that their facilities were quality, that they were designed and built to rigorous standards was to, you know, uh, use tier certifications for that. And so that was what was going on at the time with, with co-location data centers. And, you know, things have changed so much since I first started in data centers, since I first started at Uptime Institute. You know, when I started at Uptime Institute, there were four people delivering the technical work and they were all us based today we have uh, 34 engineers scattered across 13 different countries and oh, wow. still growing so it's so it's a you know it's uh it's definitely changed a lot but the data center industry has changed a lot you know when i first started chilled water plants were the the norm because the electrical power that was required to run a chilled water plant was about 25% of what it would be at with direct expansion. And so the chill water plants were all customized. The people that were operating them were well-trained and had to be well-trained and were highly experienced. You know, when I got into the industry, most of the uh, mechanics and the chiller operators were, you know, they were in their late forties and had been doing it forever. 
Uh, in fact, when I was responsible for operating data centers, one of the things that I did was stole people from the hospitals because they understood mission critical and hospitals had the same systems as data centers. But over the years, what we've seen is as technology has improved, the direct expansion technology, as well as you know, using evaporative cooling and, and other approaches, has brought the cost of using direct expansion down to pretty close to what a chill water plant can run. And so then that little elevated cost of direct expansion in terms of energy costs can be offset because the the, the rigorous skill sets of the operators are not quite as much. You know, if you're having to worry about running chillers, you got to worry about flows, hydraulics, pressure differentials, temperature differentials, uh, direct expansion most of the time. You know, you, you, you tell what set point you want it to be, you tell it to run, it runs. And if it doesn't run, well, then you have to have a technician anyway because you're dealing with refrigerant gases and other things that require special licensing to deal with. So that's been a major change what we've seen that we've seen in the industry, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years is just the the move to even to large scale direct expansion plants. So before before we get too far down the, the 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 technological changes, especially since you were there when tiers became a thing, let's go back. It's kind of funny, a little bit like Coca Cola or Kleenex, right? Everybody just says Kleenex, and what they mean is tissue paper. Um, you know, when people say tiers, I mean that's an uptime thing, but it, everybody knows, right? I, I see it in RFPs, I see it in any communication with brokers. They say, hey, here's the tier. Will you walk us through? I don't even know if I can even begin to say what a tier one data center is. Just Quick bullets, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. What are the major differences? Tier, the tier rating system has four tier levels, one through four. They're progressive, which means that uh, the subsequent tier levels have all the requirements of the previous tier levels and then add some on top of it. The first three tier levels are about providing increasing levels of opportunity for maintenance without impacting the critical load. So if you start with tier one, a tier one data center has just enough of everything. So just enough in on-site power production, which is typically engine generators, just enough cooling capacity, just enough UPS capacity for whatever load that the data center is going to operate. So you could have a single UPS, a single chiller, a single engine generator, and that's tier one. Tier one provides no opportunities for maintenance without impacting critical load. Then you step up tier two, which is redundant capacity components. So if you think of data center, all systems have capacity components. So a chiller is a capacity component, something that creates the capacity. The piping and the pumps are distribution paths. All right. Same thing on electrical. UPS system itself is a capacity component, but all the cabling, the PDUs, things of that nature are, are distribution paths. Tier two requires at least one redundant capacity component for all systems. So you'd have to have at least one redundant chiller, one redundant air handler, one redundant UPS. It, it does still allow a single distribution path. So where tier two steps up into is you can, you have the opportunity to provide, to conduct maintenance on your critical district, on your capacity components without impacting your critical load. But the critical distribution path is still a single path and doing any work on the critical distribution path will still impact your critical load. So then you get to tier three, which has all the requirements of tier two. So you have redundant capacity components, but you only tier two only has a single distribution path. Tier three requires redundant distribution paths. 
So tier three gets into full concurrent maintainability. So every capacity component, every distribution path, every system touching a critical system must be able to be isolated uh, and for planned activities. And those planned activities could be maintenance, upgrade, or replacement. And it has to be able to be isolated without impacting the critical load. We have redundant uh, capacity as well as redundant paths, so I can do all the work without changing delivery to my critical systems is what I think the key designation for Tier 3. So hit us with Tier 4, Chris. Okay. And Tier 4, so Tiers 1 through 3 is about increasing opportunities for maintenance from no opportunity for concurrent maintenance without impacting critical load, which is Tier 1, all the way through Tier 3, which is full maintenance without impacting your critical load. Tier 4 adds the idea of fault tolerance. So if you think about it, tier, tier 3 is about planned activities. You plan to go perform maintenance or do an upgrade on a system. Well, Tier 4 adds in the idea of an unplanned activity, which is a fault or a failure. So with Tier 4, the requirement basically is, is that all systems must be able to respond to a fault or failure without operator intervention and without impacting critical load. So if you think about it, if you have if, if you're running a chill water plant and you lose a chiller and the chiller spins offline, the system has to detect that the chiller has been lost, start the redundant chiller up and continue to serve the load. And it's without operator invention. It's all automatic, autonomous uh, response. And so tier four gets into being able to deal with any single event, whether it be a uh, planned activity or an unplanned activity. Got it. All right. And there's the four that you hear thrown around uh, pretty casually in our industry today, which is pretty incredible that uh, you were there in the early days. I mean, tier four is tier three, pretty pretty casually mentioned standards that everyone largely has their arms around or at least thinks they do. So I appreciate the, the refresher. All right. So the business has grown incredibly. You're in, I think you said, 13 or 14 countries. Um, talk to me a little bit about as as the industry and, and as the, I liked at the beginning, um, Chris, you talked about we had to convince enterprises that they could put their computers somewhere else um, without a doubt, had to convince them that, that it could be run safely, securely, reliably in another facility. What is it that Uptime is helping um, providers and customers with today? Uh, I certainly get those early days of, I'm not sure I'm ever going to let these servers out of my building. Um, th that that question seems to have been answered. What what challenges are you guys answering for people today? Well, we still answer some of those same challenges. Uh, a lot of our tier certification work is, is about helping people to ensure that their facilities are designed to provide the availability and resiliency that they need. If you think about a lot of companies, a lot of companies don't hire their own engineering staff. When I worked at American Airlines, I was on a team of engineers that the company actually employed. And a lot of companies just don't employ those detailed design engineers anymore. And so one of the things that we do is we help to, we help companies that are building data centers to ensure that they're getting what they paid for when they in, uh, engage with design engineers or construction companies. So we, we ensure that their designs are tier compliant. We ensure that the facility was built to the design, but also performs to it and, and meets all the tier requirements. We help clients with uh, understanding how to operate their data centers, because as you know, uh, designing a data center to the highest standards only gives you the opportunity to, to, to meet your availability needs. But you have to, you know, the operations is where 
that investment is realized over time. So you invest in a large facility with with uh, high quality systems and well a good design. But if you don't have a good operations team, you're not going to realize the availability that that facility can give you. So we help them with that as well. Uh, we're also uh, helping clients understand even non-tier rated facilities, existing facilities, we help them understand what their risks are. So we help them to look at their, their operations teams, their, their actual facilities, and uh, help them understand what that facility can give to them over the long haul, how it's going to help them meet their, their specific business needs, but also uh, what those risks are and, and where they need to kind of plug some holes of, of those risks. So that's where we're at today. Gotcha. Good stuff. So Chris, as, as you guys look at the industry and you got a great view on where our space is going, I'd love it if you'd tell me, hey, Raymond, um, one is no one's talking about this, but we ought to be. So so with that, no one's talking about it, but we ought to be. What would, what would fit in that category for you? No one in the industry is really talking about it, but I think this is going to be something we're thinking about in the future. Um, I'm hitting you with that one by a little bit of surprise. And then everyone's talking about this, and I don't think it's as big a deal as it is, it is as everyone's making it out to be. Both of those two categories. One that no one's, that few people are talking about, that I think they need to be talking about, kind of goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, the example I would have for both of your questions, they, they, they go together. So sustainability is a big, a big industry topic today, and everybody's looking at sustainability. And com- countries are looking at how to get their grids more sustainable and how to advance their grids to have more renewables. We have, uh, and data centers are doing the same sort of thing. In that, though, there's, you know, we're going to be in periods where there's going to be uh, a little bit of instability in the grids. Texas saw that this year, right? I mean, they had some problems because we had the great, what I call the great freeze. So, Cold temperatures that no one had seen in a long time, no one expected, even up here in Oklahoma, where we had 19 degrees below zero, something we hadn't seen in, in a long time. And we see some colder temperatures than Texas does. But it, it created some moments of, of instability in the grid because, of course, there was less power available than there was load. Right. And so one of the things that, you know, everybody's talking about sustainability and, and, and it's a big deal. And along with sustainability, you have engine generators. And everybody looks at our at the engine generators from the data center world as being big polluters. And the reason they look at them as being big polluters is when they operate, sure enough, they, they do pollute into the air, right? But of course, there's there's processes in, in, to help uh, reduce that, such as urea treatments, catalytic converters, those sorts of things. But most people don't realize that they only pollute when they run. And they don't run that often, but they're a good insurance uh, policy for the for the business, right? Because when you need them, you need them. And if you didn't have them when you needed them, you'd, you'd be wishing you did. Well, one of the things that what we're seeing and what I'm thinking, and only a few people are talking about this, is that we can't move our energy grids in the U.S. or any other country, any modern country, from where we stand today straight to a green, carbon neutral, resilient grid. There's going to be problems along the way, right? I mean, we understand how to operate with coal fire plants and with nuclear plants and with natural gas fired plants because all that's base load generation. Renewable is not base load generation. So over time, we're going to try some things and we're going to have some successes and we're going to have some failures. 
And so one of the things that I think is very that the industry needs to be looking at and sort of touting, if you will, and we need to be ready to do is it, when there's instability in the grids because there's not enough capacity for the load. Data centers have a huge, they consume a huge amount of power. We all know that in a very small footprint, but we have our own systems for generating power on site when we need to for emergency situations. And I think that, you know, data centers can serve a big role in the sustainability world, helping, helping us figure out how to get the right, what is, what is that right balance between base load generation and renewable sources on the grid? And, and how's that look? What are the control systems need? How do they need to change? How do those algorithms need to change? Because when you stub your toe and there's a time when for some reason we did the power companies didn't anticipate a, a hot, a, a heat wave like you'd have in Texas or a, or a sudden cold snap, which is going to put a lot more load on the grid. Data centers can help out because they can pull huge amounts of, of uh, load off of the grid and help to stabilize the grid. But they can only do that with, but they can only do that with engine generators and other reliable sources of power that we serve today. And so I think that that's a big piece that we're going to be spending a lot of time. You know, the data center industry can help that out. So I think the thing that people are talking about is sustainability. What they're not talking about is how we can help not just our industry, but the the larger society as a whole get to where we want to be. Yeah, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. What I think I hear you saying is, hey, Raymond, everyone talks about sustainability, and, and yes, that's a thing. But what they're and, and yes, they look at the data center industry and say, wow, you guys eat up a lot of juice. Right. So let's think about the juice for a state as one set of capacity. What I think I hear you saying is, hey, when a when a system is strained, when a state of Texas's capacity is strained, all the data centers conceivably could go offline and run on their generators and produce their electricity on site thus providing relief to the to the um to the grid and when's the right time to do that and how do you do it and how do you compensate them for that and how do you think about that is that what i hear you saying that's exactly what i'm saying uh you know the stint that i had with uh, the petroleum ministry at sitco petroleum sitco is a company that had has roots you know years and years in the past and they have a lot of uh, power contracts that go back to 50s and the 40s and things of that nature. And, and they had set-asides with the power companies because they run huge pumps, right? 2,000 horsepower pump motors, uh, all powered by electrical power. And they would get, they could get at their facilities called by the power company and say, hey, look, we need this much load pulled off the grid for this amount of time. Oh. Now, if you're, just, if you're just pushing power to the uh, uh to, to pipelines, you're just pushing that uh, product on the pump lines. Well, if you have to wait an hour, that's okay. Right. right. So they'd pull the power off the grid. That would free up capacity. And uh, then the power companies would then sell that on the spot market, which the power, the, the difference between what Sitco was paying per KWH at their contract and what they would get on the spot market was a lot. You know, there's a big de delta there. Sure. And because uh, it was Sitco a high demand a, window. Yeah. Yeah, and Sitco would get a cut, of, a small cut of that action, and so what did a couple of things. They were good corporate citizens, so they could help free up power when power was really required, and they got a little bit of reward from it from the power company because they got a little cut of the, you know, the, the right, profits right. off of that. Right. And so what I'm saying is, is that you know, and it's already happening in some places where data centers can sign up with power companies to be part of that set aside. 
And if a power company sees, hey, look, my grid's becoming unstable because I don't have enough capacity. It's going to take me a while to spin up some more turbines or something. Then they can call up uh, the companies that are on that and on that list and they'll pull that load off of the grid. Well, that helps to stabilize the grid because you've now starting to match capacity to load and give them time to respond with some of their base load generation. And uh, so I think that's that's a, an approach that we need to be looking at as an industry partnering with the utility companies, because as the utility companies go to modernize the grid and transition how we're producing power, we're going to have times where we're going to stub our toes, stub our toes right? I mean, living in Texas, I remember those times where you'd wake up in the morning and it would be, you know, 50 degrees in the morning, but by the afternoon it was in the 80s or 90s and everybody comes home and throws on their air conditioners because they didn't have them on previously, right? Right, And you get and you get times of brownouts. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was with years and years of experience of baseload generation with coal fire and natural gas fired power plants. Now let's add some wind into it. Let's add some solar into it. And, uh, you know, you've got a whole different system now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, and we're we're not going to get lost in electrical engineering, but I do think that's one of the things that people struggle to understand is that, um, storing electricity is hard. You generate it when you need it largely. I'm, I'm oversimplifying. And um, you can tell uh, a, a coal-fired power plant or a nuclear-fired power plant or a hydro plant, you can tell it to run or not to run. You can't tell the sun to shine and you can't tell the wind to blow. Um, it, it blows when it wants and it shines when it wants. So you don't have the on-off switch ability of generation that you have from traditional uh, you know, f- uh, power facilities. So, so it's, um, you know, like you said, when, when the demand comes, if you don't have the supply, we're, we're breaking the system. Well, and the, and the other part of the problem is, is because the, you know, the, the, the wind cannot blow or you can get heavy over, overcast, you know, all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So you can reduce, you can, you can lose some of your capacity from your re- renewable systems, right? And it takes time to bring those large turbines online, get them spun up producing power. You know, if we think in our data centers, you can have a quick start engine generator online producing power in 10 seconds. Right. Not so much at uh, the power company level. Right, right. The bigger it gets, the longer it takes, no question. Very cool stuff. Well, Chris, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you spending a little time with us and hanging out and talking. Um, we, we are uh, not only are we good friends with the, the Uptime Institute as an institution, but also uh, with lots of folks there. And we're grateful to be partners with you guys and grateful to have you come tell us a little bit about your story, as well as help people understand what Uptime does in the space and how you guys are really, I think, uh, shepherding the industry and advising people on how to. Uh, I like the way you said it. Hey, you paid. You get. You paid for this design. You paid for this deployment. Is it actually there? And does it actually work? Um, because at the end of the day, all people. Want to know is hey are my servers on and can I talk to them? And you guys help folks do that. And we we appreciate it and appreciate the standard you guys set in our industry. It's been a pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you.